Hey guys, it's Coach Tim, Spider Juice Technologies, and I have a wonderful guest on today. I, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to introduce him by reading the intro to him in his book, The Ellipsis Manual. It says, Chase was raised in Houston, Texas, attended military academy before joining the military in 1998. Chase specializes in teaching behavior profiling, interrogation, and psychological intelligence operations. Chase is the creator of the Behavioral Table of Elements for Interrogation, Profiling, and Lie Detection. He also created the Corrugation Programming Methods for Government Use and made the discovery that they can be applied to therapy and healing. Chase currently runs Ellipsis Behavior Laboratories, in Virginia Beach, Virginia, the company develops new methodologies for interrogations and psychological operations for all types of clients. This is sounding kind of James Bondish. Uh, Chase Hughes, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thanks, Tim. That was a hell of an intro. Thanks a lot. Good to be here. I, I, I appreciate you coming on, man. This is... I w- I'm reading this and I'm like, man, this is James Bond stuff. I- I've read this before, but you know, I was reading it again and holy moly, what is it that you do? I uh, pretty much what you said. I-, I specialize in behavior, and I got obsessed with behavior a long time ago, and I was really focused on figuring out what the limits of human persuasion are and the limits of being able to read uh, what's going on inside another person's head just by visual or auditory cues. And every time I got uh, better at it or I developed another skill or another method, uh, the only question I could find myself uh, trying to figure out was what, how far does it go? What's the limit? Uh, so I was trying to find the wall of how far persuasion can go and what can be accomplished. That's interesting because I don't know that too many people think like that. I mean, that, you're, how far can persuasion go is an interesting question. So how far can it go? I have not found a wall. So to this day, I think uh, you know, we, we wrote the Ellipsis Manual, which is uh, just, just two days ago hit 18 months on the number one bestseller list on Amazon. And... That right. book was, was everything I had ever learned and everything that I ever teach, all in one volume. And since then, we've made some uh, extremely uh, significant new discoveries about human authority and how authority works in the brain and just almost creates automatic obedience in people. And uh, where our next book is on that new discovery, and it will, it'll, it'll be another accumulation of everything I've, I've learned and everything that we've discovered as far as methodologies and tactics and techniques? Well, let me tell you how I came across you. I I believe you you were being interviewed about the uh, San Bernardino uh, terrorist attack, which I I usually don't get drawn into these things, but I, I was because I have family out that way, and I go out there quite a bit. And I don't remember if it was radio or TV or whatever, but I, I heard your name. I heard your company. I looked you up. Uh, and what, what's your website? Might as well say it right now. Ellipsis. Ellipsisbehavior.com. Okay. So chasehughes.com. Okay. So that I couldn't remember it. So I looked up. I remembered your name. I remembered ellipsis, which is a very memorable uh, word. And uh, there you were. There's your website. So I started following you. And I think I was getting your newsletters. And then I realized that you have a group on Facebook, which even got me closer into your stuff. And uh, that's when I really started realizing, whoa, there's some new age, new level, new whatever stuff going on that, that you're doing that's beyond the typical. Um, you, you say you push the limits and, of, of, of uh, persuasion, and I know that to be true because in the group, and this is something that really impressed me, was you're willing to go so far as you did a – I think it was a Freedom of Information Act, and you went to a college to look up a bunch of government records 
going back to the the what was it at M- MK Ultra or something? Can you tell a little bit about that adventure? Yeah. <laughs> so I. I, I discovered this guy. His name is Dr. George Estabrooks. He was a professor emeritus at uh, Colgate College, uh, Colgate University in Buffalo, New York. And uh, he was involved. He had direct communications with uh, director of the FBI, then J. Edgar Hoover. And I knew that uh, there was something going on, and uh, the government had classified so much stuff. So I, I contacted his family. Uh, his daughter is still alive and uh, got a hold of some of his notebooks and um, went up to Colgate University myself to access these archives. They had 38 cubic feet of handwritten notebooks and types of letters and correspondence and, and uh, just basically some ephemera that was in there. And I drove up to... Uh, Colgate University and spent several days down there in Colgate uh, doing this research. And we found uh, he was the guy that was made famous. If, uh, if your listeners want to search him on Wikipedia, just type in Dr. George Estabrooks. Uh, he was the guy that made famous for the quote um, about Manchurian candidates. And his quote said that he had um, created multiple Manchurian candidates and he knew it was possible. And uh, for your listeners who don't know what a Manchurian candidate is, it's basically a person who has an alternate personality, a split personality, um, ostensibly just installed into them to carry out an order or to deliver information. So uh, Dr. Estabrooks would hypnotize and split the personalities of these army officers. And this is, this is documented even in, in letters back and forth to uh, J. Edgar Hoover and on letterhead from the FBI. Uh, all, all in the research there. Wow. And uh, so he would split an army officer's personality, give the alternate personality uh, some kind of sensitive information, send him across enemy lines, and have him deliver that on the other side. And the person on the other side had a, like a, a phrase um, to speak. Well, like the moon is shining bright tonight is the exact phrase that Dr. Estabrooks used. And once that happened, then all the sensitive information was accessible. So if you have this guy that's going through enemy lines and he's carrying this information, if he gets captured or tortured or sleep deprived, uh, theoretically, this other personality is not going to come out. So the information is still protected behind some kind of mental firewall that we still kind of don't understand what that means. That's nuts. That is just so crazy. And and this is not done like last year. This is like what the fifties or sixties. <laughs> this started in fifty eight, and, uh, and and Doctor Estabrooks worked uh, well into the sixties on on this project. And I remember you you had done some videos on it, and there was like uh, on some of these letters that you had there there were recognizable names that if you've done any bit of psychology or psychiatry uh, classes or study, you know the names uh, that were in, involved in this. And so it's, it's pretty wild. Um, it was, I'm trying to think of, I think even, uh, wasn't Milton Erickson on some of those letters you showed? And, and, yeah. uh, Aldous uh, Huxley, uh, Martin yeah, Singer, Milton Erickson. Uh, would all correspond back and forth to each other, including J. Edgar Hoover was a, a member of a lot of those communiques. Wow, that's that's awesome. So, hey, uh, I, I wanted to point that out to just show how far you're willing to go to see how far it is. Um, that's why I wanted to talk about that. Let's talk about briefly the ellipsis manual because, as you said, that was your uh, your body of work uh, up until that moment uh, a couple years ago. Uh, what is that book about, and then what's the new book about? So the Ellipsis Manual is a book that uh, builds a it's, a, it's a textbook of uh, basically human behavior. So how to analyze it, how to spot human behavior, and then how to control it towards the end of the book. So the first half of the book is, is basically a detailed uh, explanation on how to read body language on a super advanced level. 
This isn't like the stuff I grew up with in the 70s where, you know, so-and-so's crossing his arm and that means he's closed off or whatever, right? This is like <laughs> high-level stuff. Yeah, the the book in the 70s you're referring to was written by uh, Julius Fast, and he's actually the guy who coined the term body language. And uh, But it's definitely well above that, and uh, I've proven multiple times that uh, just using my system is 30% more accurate than a polygraph. Wow. And uh, after, you're, after you have the ability to analyze behavior and to listen to the words people use and isolate certain words that they say to indicate a, a, a tremendous amount of information about their personality, that changes the way that you do the skills in the next part of the book, which talks about uh, creating drastic, sometimes drastic changes in somebody's behavior or maybe making them... Uh, making someone make a decision that may not be in their best interest at the current moment. So if you're talking, I mean, if you're using it for therapy, those people think some of those decisions are not in their best interest. And if you're using it for intelligence work and you're talking a foreign national into basically committing treason and, and spying for the United States, uh, that's that's probably not in that guy's best interest. He could probably get killed for it. Yeah. So, you, your your words and your language need to be sharp. And I'm I'm the guy that that teaches those methods. I'm the guy that uh, developed all of that stuff uh, originally for the government, and now I, I own the intellectual property to it. I maintain uh, rights to everything. Uh, but I think that was, that was just a result of me searching for the wall. That was just a result of searching for uh, the capacity of, of human influence, one human influencing another or a group of people. Now, uh, just a side note, are you still... Uh in, what's the word they, uh, are you still in the military? Yes? Yes, I have three months until I retire, actually. Oh, congratulations. So how do they let you, how do you do this while still in the military? Is there, is there a, a conflict or? There uh, could be uh, a conflict if that was my normal day-to-day uh, -day job. But I, uh, I publish all of my stuff online. I make it publicly available. And I, uh, I maintain the copyright and the intellectual property to everything. Oh, okay. So that, 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 that's not your, your main thing in the military, what you're doing, I guess? I'm, I'm just... No. Uh, my main job now, uh, you know, we switch jobs quite a bit. Uh, I work in a uh, combat unit uh, on uh, the amphibious base here in Virginia. Wow. Okay. Um, so getting back to the ellipsis manual, uh, there's, I think I read this in the ellipsis manual where you talk about how to get free coffee at Starbucks yes. or somewhere, right? You actually have, you, you teach how to do that, right? Yes. <laughs> you want to, can you give a little bit of a clue to the listeners how that might happen? Uh, well, the first step in, in getting free coffee is to make sure that you have absolutely zero uh, doubt in your own abilities. Because if you do, uh, nothing's going to happen for you. Yeah. So aside from that, uh, the first thing you would do is throw out a statement that's designed to break the autopilot responses of the employee. So when we talk about an autopilot response, this is something that people get into uh, when they're at work, when they're driving, when they're talking to friends. It's just a natural memorized patterns. So like when we talk about like uh, video game characters who are fake, like fake characters in a uh, video game, they're just kind of running scripts the entire time. And when a person is at work, especially when they're doing repetitive tasks throughout the day, they have a, a large number of scripts that are running in the background. And your first job is to break that script and make something uh, appear as if this environment is different than the previous ones and I need to pay attention. So, for instance, just to illustrate the autopilot, if you're driving down the road, we've all had that experience where we just kind of stop paying attention and our, our unconscious part of our brain starts to take over. And a few minutes go by and then maybe some guy starts to swerve in front of you and you're like, oh, shit, I need to pump the brakes a little bit. Yeah. And then... Your, all of your focus goes right in front of you because there's something new that deviates from what your unconscious has memorized to do for you. 
that's kind of what an autopilot is. So anything that deviates from the norm to make that person focus more. Does that make sense? sense? Makes sense, totally. So this could take place in the form of just a random question that you know for a fact that this person does not hear all the time. Let's call it a woman. So she does not hear uh, certain types of questions, certain accents, or see certain behavior on a regular basis. So if you were to walk up and ask, like, what's the weirdest customer that you guys have ever had in here? Probably no one or one person in her entire history has ever asked that question. So she has to come out of script mode in order to give you an answer. And during that exit from her script, from her just doing this automatic repetitive behavior, you have a tremendous amount of focus that you can capitalize on. So it's one question. And that, if, if I may just stop you for a second, breaking somebody's pattern like that and focuses attention on you in a new way that's pretty powerful in if you're in sales or in a relationship or like me in a, in a, as a coach, right? You, to break somebody's mental script so they don't have to think and then to make them focus in on you is, is powerful. Yeah, just that, that one method by itself is extremely powerful. And so the first method... Uh, I would teach if, if you were an intelligence operative or something like that going overseas, that's still the first method. Uh, even though it's, we're talking about getting a free copy or free coffee, it's still the first method uh, that we would, that we would teach. Uh huh. Very cool. Very cool. And then it goes from there. For sure. So then you could throw out a quick statement designed to produce maybe a half a second of confusion followed by, uh, you just basically asking for a free coffee or talking about, depending on how much time you have, uh, talking about how that person is uh, tremendously grateful and giving and uh-huh. uh, generous, basically. So a confusion statement could be something as similar. You walk in there and say, hey, what's like the craziest customer you guys have ever had in here? And, of course, you'll see her eyes move a certain direction. Um and you would want to move the opposite direction. So if, if she's recalling a negative memory to her right side, you'd want to move towards her left side for the confusion mm-hmm. statement. So you take a small step over and say, hey, and then pick up your phone, look at your phone really quick and be like, hey, do you know which direction is northeast? So <laughs> you'll see her eyes go up again to do this memory recall to just kind of access that part of her brain that recalls directions. And during that time, then you can ask, or then you can start supplanting more emotional stuff to make her get into that state to give you a free coffee. Now, is that more powerful during the confusion, or do you let them kind of get their, their bearings and then start saying it? I would say as soon as you see the eye movement from when you ask which direction northeast is, um, that is when you want to capitalize on that brain sensation. So I know a lot of your listeners are not uh, people like me. So the whole purpose of using confusion as a weapon, so to speak, in that conversation is that if a person is drowning or if a person is really insecure about where they are, the first solid object, you know, that's why our hands flip around uh, when we're falling off a cliff or when we're, uh, really nervous in a swimming pool. Our brains work the same way. Our arms and legs are moving around, and the first solid thing that we feel, we're going to grab it, even if it's a rose bush. Mm. So during confusion, when the brain is confused, the first factual piece of evidence or the first uh, logical thing that the brain can kind of hold on to will automatically be accepted without being criticized by the receiver. So basically the firewall is down. Yes. So you're kind of doing a cyber attack, which is where they do like an overload. I forgot what they call that. Denial of service, I think. Denial of service. Yes. Denial of service attack. Yeah. (laughs) A human denial of service. You're going to have to put that into some of your writing. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, that's crazy. That, that is uh, amazing and, and a wonderful uh, 
explanation. Let's get into authority, which is the subject of your next book. And you say you have all kinds of new discoveries. What, can you share some of those? Sure. I mean, the, the Influence, Skills, and the Ellipsis Manual are probably, uh, I mean, Tim, you've read it. I would say that uh, there's no other book that, that matches uh, what, what the potential is if you were to use all the methods in that book. Agreed. Agreed. And building upon all of that, there's a chapter in the Ellipsis Manual called Authority. And mm-hmm. this chapter specifically, I've received over 4,000 emails about how someone has just printed out this chapter or just uh, taken notes out of this chapter and used it to change their lives. So we started digging in. I had my interns do some uh, research on authority. And Digging into authority, we realized that authority uh, is more important than influence skills or persuasion tactics in that if you try to use these tactics and you have no authority, you're not going to be able to use them. So I could give you the exact words that I use for a certain scenario, and if you don't have the same demeanor as I do or if you don't have the same level of confidence as I do, it's going to fall flat. So the words are not all that's important. You know, people get obsessed or wrapped around, like, what are the exact words I need to say? What's the script? Everybody wants the script. Right. Uh, And it reminds me of um, a guy who who wanted to borrow Malcolm Gladwell's keyboard just just to help him write. Um, And it's it's like going to a a medical supply store and buying a bunch of supplies. Like, I just want the supplies. I don't want to go to med school. I don't want to do any of that. I just want to buy these supplies and tell everybody I'm a doctor. So that's kind of, that's kind of what that stuff is. Like, you need the internals to make the externals work. That scalpel is not going to perform heart surgery without the hand holding it, uh, having a lot of training. Well, then how does, how does somebody get authority? How do you... How do you do I just, you know, fake, you hear fake it till I make it. I'm going to walk out there and, you know, pretend I have authority and all that and stand tall. What, what's, the, what's the magic elixir then? So I would say if there was a magic elixir, there's three different components. And the first is the human behavior traits that are naturally associated with authoritative figures. And those are confidence, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and enjoyment. And each one of those has its own multifaceted parts where you just develop those. And we have a chart that we'll be releasing with the book where you can rate yourself on a one to five scale where you stand on each of those so you can get a better idea of what you need to work on. But those are the natural traits that create obedience or create followership is what I like to call it. Can you repeat those one more time, please? I'm sorry. Yeah, those are confidence, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and enjoyment, or just being a, a person that's having fun most of the time. Oh, okay, okay. Um, is, so I meet you. I'm ne- I don't know anything about you. You walk into the room, and you have those traits, seemingly. Is it because I know in my experience as a human being when I've seen somebody or heard somebody or felt somebody act in that way that you're acting with all five of those straight, those traits being demonstrated, does that tell me as a human being based on my own experience that that's a guy that has authority? Uh, Yes, actually. So what your brain is doing all the time, there's been thousands of research uh, that that supports this, aside from, I mean, just your own experience. Your brain is constantly looking for authority figures or for someone in any social situation, someone to follow. And there are five triggers that our brains go through when we see somebody. So let's say we're in a uh, crowded street in Manhattan. You don't know anyone. Yes. So the... The first thing that's going to trigger your authority or obedience behavior in you, Tim, would be uh, movement. So it would be how that person moves. Second would be their appearance. So you'd see out of the corner of your eye that somebody's moving in a really confident way or someone's deviating from the crowd somehow. Like let's say there was a guy that got mugged or a guy that got stabbed on the street. He's begging for help. No one's helping him. 
So no one, and this is called the bystander effect. And this is something definitely worth looking up. There's a 10 minute video on YouTube by Dr. Philip Zimbardo on this. Just look, type in bystander effect and you'll get it. Thank so you. I will. If you, if you get stabbed in the middle of the street in New York City, the more people around you, the less likely you are to get any kind of help whatsoever. Really? Yeah. So there's, there's crowd mentality and crowd agreement of the social agreement that all of these people kind of agree to step over this guy who's injured on the ground. They walk right past him. They don't make eye contact with him. So let's say one guy breaks and deviates from this social behavior. Everybody has this unspoken contract. And I would just, I beg your listeners to, to just take a look at this video. It's, it's astonishing and kind of scary at the same time. So the first thing that you would see is this one guy breaking from the crowd and walking directly towards this guy. So you would see the movement. Then you would look at the guy. Then you would see his appearance. So if the guy's dressed in homeless clothing, you will not deviate from that social behavior. Oh, God, that's terrible. So the guy assisting him is wearing, like, homeless-looking clothes. looks like a homeless guy. You're going to keep walking because you don't want to deviate from the crowd and follow a homeless guy to help this dude. So let's say he's wearing a business suit. He's got a great haircut. So appearance, check. He looks really well put together. Next is confidence. How confident is he in walking towards that guy that's injured? If he's just kind of sauntering over there, and, and not really looking confident about it, and he's kind of sidestepping his way over that body, you're not going to go over there and help him help this guy. You're not going to follow his behavior. So let's say he's walking directly towards the guy who's injured. So boom, now we have confidence. He's confident in what he's doing. Next is connection. And this happens everywhere. This is like if you're talking one-on-one with a person, that level of interpersonal connection, how genuinely interested they are in you. Or let's go back to the street scenario. How connected is he to what's going on? If the guy is confidently walking towards the injured person, but he's looking around the crowd for someone to help him as if he were uncertain or unsure of what he was doing, boom, you've canceled that. You've blocked authority, and now you're less likely to help him out. And the final, final factor here is called internalized feelings. So these are the five traits here. The internalized feelings happen once you've got there. So once you've made that decision, you're going to keep making that decision if that person produces a good internal feeling. And in the ellipsis manual, we talk about, like, if you walked into a piano store and you hit the middle key on the piano, it's a C, it's going to vibrate that C string on every other piano in the store. And human beings are much the same way. And the scientists call this exact phenomenon social coherence. So if, if you are, you've got all of this stuff put together, you've just got a haircut, you've got a brand new suit on, you know exactly how to stand up straight, you have good posture, you're walking well, so you've got all of that stuff handled. But you've got a six-foot pile of laundry back at home that you didn't do, your dishes aren't done, you're late on your taxes, all of this shit kind of piles up, and there's a part of your brain that's almost dedicated to reminding you that you're irresponsible. So we've all had that moment like where you go out to a big social event or you go out to a big party and there's something there reminding you like, man, I've got a bunch of crap to do. I neglected a bunch of stuff tonight. So that triggers, just like the piano keys, that triggers those chords in other people. So that's when you have those situations where like the guy looks really confident, but a woman might say, well, something, something fell off. Something's not right about what's going on here. So that is the final element of authority for those five, what we call trip wires. It's so that guy, that guy's, that, that's amazing. So if that guy, he's looking great, but in the back of his mind, he's got issues uh, back home and he's at a club, he's at a social event, whatever he's at, and he's single and he's wanting to meet the, the ladies, is that, is that shining through or, or I should say shadowing through maybe uh, to, to the lady? Uh, is she feeling there's something that's not right? Is that where incongruence oh, comes from? Absolutely. And the incongruence is not something we're conscious of. So like I said, we're unconsciously scanning for this authority all the time. 
So we, he's got the authority, you know, he's having a good conversation, but then all of a sudden something is off, something is not right. So this is what we call nonverbal leakage, where we unintentionally oh. signal that there's something going on. And if you don't have your stuff handled, for lack of a better term, uh, it's going to leak out. It's going to come out in your nonverbals, your eyes, your speech, your volume, your tone, your shoulders, how you're standing. There's so many different things that our unconscious brains are picking up on to the point where it could make someone else not trust you or not have any faith in what you're saying, especially when it comes time to exert authority or to take, take charge in an emergency situation. Well, then, okay, uh, I'm 23 years old, right out of college, and I did all the right stuff. Mom and dad bought me a, you know, a $2,000 tailored suit. Uh, I, 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 I have the degree. I have the this, the that, the haircut. I look good, right? But I'm 23 or whatever and new in the world, and my girlfriend just broke up with me, and I'm going into a, a job interview. How do you, how do you, how do you fix that? There's a lot of things going on there, uh, especially going into a job interview when, when you're in a needy state. Uh, so fixing, fixing that would mean fixing uh, everything that's going on in your life. And there, we've determined over 17,000 students so far that there are five areas of your life that you need to get a really firm grip on, and you need to do these in order. And you don't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. A lot of people are obsessed with uh, just getting this perfection done, even if it's mm -hmm. journaling or something like that. Um, and these are environment, time, appearance, social, and financial. So when I say environment, that just means make your bed, make your house clean. Don't ever leave a mess. Don't walk past a mess ever. Wash your dishes immediately. Put, do your laundry right when it's supposed to be done. This is just, just taking right action and using that discipline that we talked about as one of those five characteristics. The next is time. And I don't care what calendar system you use or whose program you use, but get a hold of your calendar, how you spend your time. And I would say the number one thing that kills people's success when they start trying to master their time is assigning equal weight to all tasks. This is when people get overwhelmed. So they never have a time issue. They just have a priority issue. So I would say prioritizing tasks is incredibly important. Appearance is next. And we talked about appearance as one of the authority tripwires. And this means everything down to the, how healthy you appear to be, uh, whether or not your eyes are shiny and clear. You have a recent haircut or you look like a, uh, a socially recognized authority figure in whatever area you're in. So you just just physically and visually put together. Gotcha. And after appearance, so it's, let's go back to the beginning. It's environment, time, appearance, social, and financial. So when we talk about social, mastering that social part of your life, I don't care what courses you use, but you have to get better at being comfortable talking to strangers. And if you want to develop authority, you have to be comfortable telling a stranger what to do. I remember when I teach people mirroring and matching, which is an old-timey sales technique. Um, when you see somebody start to mirror your behavior and you're doing it on purpose, there's like a feeling of guilt there at the beginning. And you've got to be able to get over that. You have to be able to develop these social skills to where you can talk to a stranger in a store and develop a genuine, real interest in other people because people can smell the difference. Big time. Let, let me ask you something, because certainly this was a, an issue uh, with me way, way, way back. Um, and I've, I noticed in people, uh, particularly probably, uh, I think, that have gone through heavy religion, religious upbringing, where... Uh, they don't, they have a problem pushing something on somebody to, with that authority that you're talking about, telling somebody what to do uh, without having uh, complete, complete trust in what they're, uh, what they're selling. I don't know if I'm making sense. Um, in other words, they yeah. want to be an integrity, I guess, but it's almost yes. a false integrity. And, and, does that, do you know where I'm going with this? Am I making sense? Yes, yes. So we have so many 
a lot of people that call themselves a leader who wouldn't be able to tell a stranger uh, to go do something really quick, even if they don't know the person. They don't work, that person doesn't work for them. Right. And it starts out small, and it's all about your internal beliefs of what you deserve and what you're capable of. And it's my personal belief, you're going to get back from this world exactly what you think you deserve. And mm-hmm. changing that belief takes time, but you have to do physical actions to change that belief. Something as small as like, let's use a real basic example. Let's say you're standing in line to check out at Walmart. So you've just pat, you've got to the register. There's a person like right behind you, you know, everybody kind of crowds in there. Just turning around and asking someone to hand you a Butterfinger or hand me that Reader's Digest over there, would you? Just small requests uh, and getting used to starting a conversation with strangers and then asking favors from a stranger and just becoming more aware of how compliant most people are, especially when you're confident in your ability. And the more you do that, the more confident you be, the more you will be. And the more confident you are, the more your beliefs are going to change of, of what you're capable of. That's funny you say uh, Walmart. I, we, we shop sometimes for groceries at Walmart, and I just had a uh, – a, uh, I, I thought of this because I, when I go through the grocery line, I have to make the, the cashier smile or laugh. It's just my rule. And, and that's funny you said, and I, I've made myself do that because I want to be better at talking to strangers and now they're not strangers, right? Yeah. That is such a, that's a great, that's a great policy to have. I pretty, I do a very uh, similar approach and I, I mean, I've got it all the way down to where I'll jokingly uh, turn around to somebody who only has one or two items and this lady will be standing behind me with like a cliff bar at a Seven Eleven or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say, uh, hey, uh, is, that, is that all you're getting right there? And she'll say, yeah. And then I'll turn around to her kind of jokingly and I'll say, you know, it's, it's fine. Go ahead and put it in your purse. I'll, I'll stand in front of you. Nobody will see it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, talk about a pattern interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then, you know, it's, it's obviously a joke. And uh, people who are socially uh, intelligent find it pretty amusing. <laughs> that, would, that would absolutely kill me. I would be in tears if, you, if somebody did that to me. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Hey, I, you made me think about something um, uh, in, 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 in your talk. Um, it reminded me of practice the other day, and you talk about authority, and, and, and I kind of lopped it into the word leadership as the way I kind of kept But it was sort of, you know, it's like sort of one of these Rudy moments, you know, that is, are supposed to happen on a football team all the time. And it's like, not really, but, you know, TV makes us all think so. But it was like a Rudy moment, and um, uh, I had these – the guys, because I, I cannot get my big boys, they're freshmen, to get low enough. you got to be low to play football, and they're linemen. And so I said, okay, well, we're gonna, the whole team's going to do these little duck walks. If you remember as a kid doing duck walks, and you're really low to yeah. the ground. And, and uh, if you're you know, heavy and overweight and kind of a, a doughboy still, haven't grown into your body, it's, it's tough. And uh, there's this one kid, God bless him, he, uh, he was the last guy, and everybody's just waiting, right? And uh, they're waiting for about, I don't know, five or ten seconds, and then all of a sudden, this one kid runs out there and then joins them. And so he risked, you know, do, doing that. You were talking, what reminded me was the guy laying there in, in, uh, uh, on the ground in New York City. That's what put this in my head. And, uh, and so he starts doing the duck walk, which is like molasses going forward. <laughs> and, uh, and then all of a sudden the rest of the team, after a little bit, finally followed. And, and it was fascinating to me uh, as, you know, just an observer of behavior. Wow. You know, it, 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 it took a few seconds and then finally – Everybody said, "Hey, we should go join them." 
you know, and <laughs> now you have the whole group, but it was the first guy that, that did it. And, uh, it was, it was pretty neat. It was, it really was, but why the one guy first having the guts and everybody else, you know, wait five or 10 seconds and realize, oh, well, maybe we should go join them. Uh, that was, that was interesting to me. Yeah. What, like a, what is, how is authority wave. work in that? Is that, is that have anything to do with what you talked about? Yeah. So that, that's called, that's authority as well. That's social authority or what they call authority of the crowd. And uh, they call that social conformity. So okay. one of the research projects they did for this, they had nine kids in a room, but college kids. And uh, one of the kids, they were all in on the experiment, but only one kid was not in on the experiment. So they put a, a really easy problem up on the board and everybody in the room would give the wrong answer. And then when they finally got around to this last kid, who was the participant in the experiment, uh, they discovered that he would start giving the wrong answer just because everyone else in the room did. So we're, we're, we're prone to obey social, social behavior, especially social norms that we see other people doing something, especially when we see multiple people doing it. Even to uh, our own stuff, dismay. A hundred percent to our own dismay. Uh, because uh, if you think uh, back 10,000 years ago when we were a bunch of nomadic tribes, uh, people who didn't conform to social behaviors and didn't do what everybody else was doing was either going to get uh, lose track of the crowd and get eaten by a saber tooth yeah. or uh, lose track of the crowd and get lost or they would get killed because they're a social outcast or they're not going to be able to mate with another person because they're socially outcast. So what drives down to survival and mating? That's how hardwired social behavior is for us. Fascinating. And that actually being social, too social, uh, hurts in mating because people become the trapped in, uh, what do they call it, the friend trap or whatever in, in trying to meet up with the opposite sex. I would say that's, that might apply more to men. Um, as there's not a lot of girls who get put in the friend zone. I would say it's 10 to 1. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, that uh, friend zone behavior usually happens from a non-aggressive male who does not display a lot of confidence and leadership qualities, uh, and who just kind of nourishes his social intelligence, but is not uh, doesn't exhibit the mating qualities of of what a female brain is triggered to respond to based on based on research. And all of this stuff is is crazy because it goes back to we're wired this way from surviving all these thousands of years, right? Yeah. I mean, our, our brains haven't changed. Uh, they have not changed a single bit in 250,000 years. Really? And, uh, we haven't developed a single new wrinkle. Uh, they're not bigger. I mean, we're not doing anything different with the brain. It's the outside world that's changing. But we still have a 350,000-year-old organism controlling our bodies. And it's got some serious programming in it. So uh, over the course of a normal interaction, we're going to scan for other people in the room that are authority figures. We're scanning constantly for whether or not to obey the person that's in front of us. And that has so much to do with whether or not you basically just handle your business or not. Go ahead. I think if if your listeners were to pay me uh, $10,000, uh, for one piece of advice and uh, 17 years of studying this stuff. Uh, if you paid me to sum everything up in a single sentence, it would be that the key to success in life overall is just having the ability to calmly enjoy everyday tasks that need to be done. Interesting. Like you said, doing the laundry and the dishes and taking out the trash and right. Yes, and calmly enjoying that. And finding that's uh, that's that's nice. Um, I want to ask you. You you talked about breaking patterns. Is is it? I, I have a something that I say, and it's a shortcut. And and I'm talking about shortcuts. And what I like to say is that we as people 
like to not have to think. We want shortcuts. And, that, and so we pick programs, uh, as you say, or scripts, so we can just get through it and not have to think. And, and, and so when I see, like, kids that I coach in football or even in a sales situation, you can tell that another person is expecting a certain, a certain pattern that I'm going to follow that they've been through before, right? And so like at, at football, I'll, like yesterday I did it, I flipped the entire practice. So they're used to, for the last, they've been with me, I'm going to say probably two months now. And it follows a certain pattern. We warm up, we do this, we do that, blah, 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 all the way to the end where we do sprints. So I flipped it over to, to, to pattern interrupt them so that we're doing sprints at the beginning, we're doing team stuff that's usually at the end, we're doing up front, and just so that they're not ever comfortable in, a, in that they can just kind of go through practice not really having to, to, to be all there, to be present. Is, such a great idea. Is that, I was going to ask you, is that, do you agree? Yes, I think it's a fantastic idea. I remember the first time I heard about this, I was probably 21 or 22. Uh, one of my mentors uh, just told me to brush my teeth with my left hand instead of my right hand when I woke up the next day. And starting the day off with a pattern interrupt uh, was so awesome to the point where I would force myself to interrupt patterns on purpose throughout the day. So that's a and good I, thing to do then. I think, it, yeah, it, it really contributes to not just creativity, but you're building new uh, neural pathways or just electrical connections in the brain. Wow. Very cool, very cool. Well, let me, on, on, on the football note, let me ask you this. This is something that I've been aware of, of all the years that I've coached, and I don't know if I have a new appreciation for the issue or maybe just some, something's changed in me, but one of the things that I've been very cognizant of and concerned about is guys that come in with preconceived ideas of what they're capable of right, as an athlete. And so if I never really have been told at an early age that, you know, I'm a great athlete or any of the, the, the things that maybe great athletes, I, I guess, are told as, as, as young kids, um, I see a lot of guys that, I have, and it's every year. I mean, you have a group of guys, most of them, that are, are stuck. They're stuck in their own ideas of their limitations and how far is far, right? They, and, and, and then there's guys that just, for whatever reason, you know, the, the stars align. They had great parents, supportive parents, or they just did it. Are, they realize that they can go as far as they want to go in, in, in sport. And, uh, and develop their body to do that. What would you suggest off the top of your head uh, as a way to get uh, these guys that are, you know, in the average, let's just say, to go to the next level, to believe in themselves and to try? or I try, I don't like the word, the, to uh, 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 give it a chance? Uh, I would definitely associate uh, individually, if you have a chance to, with, with the needs of, of each person and figure out what the actual needs are and tie their success to what their needs are. And as a, as a corollary to that, as they progress through training, I would track as many metrics and as many numbers as possible to show them their progress and to know that they haven't hit a wall yet. They can still keep moving up and they've already been moving up just to kind of change their belief in the fact that they can't grow anymore. It'll show that upward climb that they, that they've gotten halfway up the mountain and they still have, still have lots of room to grow. And certainly that's a great metaphor for, us in our own jobs and in our families and 
so on and so forth, right? I certainly think so. I do the same thing with my kids. Nice, nice. Um, can you talk about, I've heard you talk about uh, this, the Stanford, I think it was Stanford, Stanley Milgram, um, experiments and, and, and author, how that relates to authority? Yeah, so the, uh, that was done at Yale, and uh, it's 1962. This uh, doctor at Yale is, is a behavioral psych- a social psychologist, it's Dr. Stanley Milgram. His parents were a Jewish refugee during World War II. Uh, they survived, thank God, and he was watching these uh, war tribunals where these Nazi war criminals were on trial, uh, especially the ones in, in Israel there. And the war criminals would, would just answer when they, when they were asked, like, why did you do this? They would say, I was just following orders. Yeah. So Dr. Milgram wanted to prove whether or not the following orders defense was real, whether or not people could be made to do that just because they were obeying some kind of authority or acting on behalf of an authority. So if you're acting on behalf of an authority, then you, it's what he calls an agentic shift based off the word becoming an agent. So the agentic shift means that my, I have no more responsibility for my actions. That's the responsibility of the person that's telling me to do these things. So he devised this experiment, put an ad in the paper, says, we'll give you 12 bucks to participate in this experience, uh, experiment, and we'll pay for your gas. So these people showed up, and a guy walks into a room, and he's told to either choose between uh, two straws, and one says teacher and one says student on it. But the guy who shows up for the experiment always draws the straw that says teacher, because the one that's the student is a plant. He's a co-conspirator for the experiment. <laughs> so they escort him in. They strap this guy uh, who's the learner to a shocking machine that's going to deliver electric shocks to his body. They close the door, and in the next room right beside it, they sit this guy down who's participating in the experiment. They sit him down at a table in front of this really intimidating machine that's supposedly giving shocks to the guy in the other room. So long story short, they he's got to ask a bunch of questions, and every time this guy gets, a, gets an answer wrong, he's got to deliver increasing shocks and increasing in voltage. And the machine in front of him goes from zero uh, all the way to 450 volts, followed by an XXX after that. <laughs> so this dude in the other room, who's an actor, uh, yeah, continues yeah. to get, get these answers wrong, and he's getting shocked, and it's increasing... This guy in the room who's monitoring the experiment is just a guy wearing a gray lab coat. And some of these people start to protest because the guy in the other room starts banging on the wall. He says, I want to get out of here. The heart condition. I don't want to do this anymore. And he's screaming based on these shocks. And these psychiatrists who, and psychologists who uh, analyzed the experiment before it happened predicted that 0.01% would shock a stranger all the way to the point of death. And 65% did. 65. And what was the reason? Why did they say that they did that? They were just following orders. (laughs) So this experimenter, the guy in the lab coat, only had four basic responses when these people would start to protest. And of course, get up and leave the room at any time. So this guy's shocking this other guy to death. He's pounding on the walls. He's screaming. And once they reach about 350, 400 volts, the guy in the other room just completely stops making any sound whatsoever. He doesn't That's even just answer mean. the questions. <laughs> yeah. It was, I mean, there's a lot of people that came back and said that he's, he's being mean, but uh, the experiment's been replicated a hundred times with the, almost the exact same results. And that's what, and that really tells you how how easy it is to manipulate us humans, especially when authority is involved. When authority, so imagine if you had that guy, the same guy in the lab coat. He didn't have a lab coat on, and he was just using some basic 
uh, influence or persuasion skills. Like how likely would that guy be if he was using what they called like covert hypnosis? Right. How likely would it be to talk a stranger into murder without authority? Right. You've got to have authority to persuade. And everybody's in the persuasion business, whether you're a school teacher, a car salesman, or you're in the military. Persuasion is, is currency. And well, authority is, is the number one ingredient. So if this was real, right, it was a real experiment, you, you have people dying. And that person in lab coats, a horrible human being. And, but we actually have authority figures that really are horrible human beings and, and, or, or, you know, not like, like Hitler or something maybe sometimes, but they have authority and they, they misuse it. I mean, and you could see a real bad abuse was uh, Sandusky at Penn, uh, Penn state, uh, going that, that, uh, I can't remember if it was actual rape or whatever it was, but there was oh, yeah. that that went on at uh, at Penn State uh, football that that uh, was a mess for their their whole program for a long time, as well as the victims of it. Um, and and you see the Catholic Church. I guess they have a. I read the other day. I guess they have another bunch of people that have come out uh, that uh, said they were uh, victims of the priests, who again are given. Uh, boy, especially in, in the in the Catholic Church, given incredible authority and uh, and respect, and and so on and so forth uh, throughout society. How do we inoculate against that? How do we protect ourselves? Yeah. So there's no uh, there's no obedience vaccination. <laughs> it's built into our brains. But uh, learning about this stuff. Uh, reading the book that's coming out here or reading any book on authority is probably the best way to um, realize when it's happening. Because if you're not, if you're not educated in it and the, the worst thing that you could possibly do is believe that your brain is unhackable. Yeah. There, there's nothing uh, funnier than a person saying or joking that they can't be hypnotized, right? I think that's hilarious, yes. <laughs> We're hypnotized every day. That's why they have those commercials on TV. <laughs> um, I want to ask you, where do we see in our day-to-day of authority being used on us, and not necessarily in a bad way, in a good way, or maybe just a, you know, a, a neutral way. Uh, do, do we see it happening on social media? Uh, do we, where, where do we see it happening? Uh, it, it happens everywhere. It's every time you let off the gas pedal as you approach a, a police officer parked on the side of the road. <laughs> it's showing, proving that uh, news anchors are more believable when they're better looking. Uh, it's when a, have you ever heard of the nocebo effect? Yeah. Yeah. So like that's, this is when a, a doctor wearing a lab coat can talk to a patient and uh, tell them they're going to have certain side effects with this medication. Even if it's false, the, the patient's going to start having these side effects. Or if a patient gets diagnosed with terminal cancer and they have no cancer, but a doctor tells them they do, they're going to start feeling sick. So all throughout our lives, this is including teachers uh, who can either poison children's minds or, or nourish them with their authority. Uh, just, and I think we don't realize how much of an effect uh, that we have as authority figures, especially over kids. Um, and, that was that, and the teacher thing to, to, to cut you off is the Pygmalion. Isn't, that's a, a pretty documented, isn't it? Yes, the Pygmalion effect. There's a really great book that was written about that called The Witch in the Waiting Room, uh, where they investigated uh, how just one comment from an authority figure could curse. Uh, I don't mean the actual curse. I just mean yeah. uh, really screw up the rest of someone's life. Wow. Wow, and especially, the, especially with kids. I mean, they're... Those are, 
the kids are, are an open book, you know, still, even the high school kids, they're just, their brains are just wide open. And, and, uh, if you, there's so many opportunities that we have as adults, as me with, as a coach or, or teachers to, to pour in good stuff into them and, and, and let them know that they have the ability to be successful. And, and really that's why I coach. I care less about wins and losses. It's, I just want to give back, you know, what was given to me and, uh, and, and, and teach it to the kids and hopefully uh, they'll do the same. But I just think that that's the real opportunity that, that teachers have or anybody that's around child, a lot of children. I really agree. And I think uh, people that realize that amount of authority or ignore it, uh, it's, it's obviously anybody's decision. But realizing it not only helps you to avoid uh, being caught into an authority trap, it helps you to remember how much influence you might have as a manager, a boss, a teacher, a coach, a doctor uh, in, in someone's life. And that's, that's the whole premise of, of my book is writing down all of the factors and exposing everything, every, every factor that your subconscious is looking for, every factor that triggers it how to trigger that obedience quality in other people. Uh, you can, it's, it's mostly like a, a firearm. You know, most people are going to use them for good. There's always going to be idiots uh, who do stupid stuff with them. So would you say, I asked you this a second ago, but would you say that the inoculation is becoming more authoritative? Absolutely. If the more authority you have, the less uh, that, others with less authority can exert over you, uh, even on an unconscious level. And mm. if you're not trying to become more authoritative, just learning how weak, um, and I hate to say this, but it, it's such a fact that our, our brains can be uh, tricked and manipulated in so many different ways, and it's especially true uh, for anybody in a position of authority to do that. Mm. Interesting. Um, Hey, Chase, uh, I appreciate all the time. I, I don't want to hold you any longer. Um, when is the book coming out? Our scheduled release date is December 31st of this year. That's exciting. I'm going to get it for sure. And I want to also ask you, um, how do I get to your website again? And also, how do I get to the group on Facebook? Uh, the group on Facebook, you just type in engineering behavior, engineering behavior. And my website, you can either just Google Chase Hughes. I think it's the first result. Or just go to chasehughes.com or ellipsisbehavior.com. Very cool. What else, uh, before we go, what else do you have on deck? Uh, anything exciting that's James Bondish that would uh, <laughs> be interesting? Well, we just started a, a brand-new course that is designed to save law enforcement lives across the country called tactical behavior science that goes into body language, deception detection, interrogation, and most importantly, violent behavior recognition. And we have a 100% money back guarantee. We have a guarantee of reduction in violence and on officers and fatalities. And wow. our secondary guarantee is that if every officer does not unanimously agree that our training is as important as body armor, the training is free. The hell of a guarantee. Wow. I support that, that, what we do, and, and I, think to, I think I can – my goal, my personal goal is to see, see a reduction in officer fatalities and violence against police officers. So we're trying to spread the word as much as we can, especially about that training. We've, we've always, always got some intelligence-type uh, stuff going on, but I think this is going to make a, a much better impact across America. That's pretty neat. That's, uh, that's a hell of a goal, and, and uh, that's a, a very, uh, what's the word, the very inspiring, I, you know, because the, the, the cops are just, they always are on the, the the bad side of the news, you know, and, yeah. uh, being able it, they, they have a real difficult job. I wouldn't want to be one. That's, let me put it that yeah, way. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's tough to be able to 
or to have to during your course of your day. Build community trust, maintain community relations, be nice to everyone you meet, and, and do the protect and serve thing and actually be a, a public servant as a police officer. And at the exact same time, you're trying to build trust with your community uh, to, to have to be ready to get stabbed in the face or to get shot. Um, yes. That, see, I, I, it's funny because I, I recently, I recently uh, become friends with an ex-cop. And, um, and I realized when I started get, he wouldn't let me take him into any stories I told. And it was, it's frustrating. You, you know, you want to tell a story and it's like the guy won't go into the story. It's come on, man. And, and so I, I was starting to think about it. And I'm, I thought, golly, he can't, he was trained for years not to go in because if he had, he's pulled somebody over and he's asking something, he can't give, go into trance because there might be a knife coming at him from behind. And uh, that's, a, that's, a tough, that's a tough thing to juggle. I can't imagine having to juggle that. And, uh, and it's still trained in them. So that, you being able to give people, these guys, more resources mentally yeah. to, to deal with this stuff is, uh, is phenomenal and, and, uh, and inspiring. But with that... Chase, I appreciate your time. Uh, you, you dropped, this is something I know myself I'm going to listen to a few times at least because <laughs> uh, well, you. You, you dropped a lot of information that uh, I think for people listening or hear, reading you for the first time are going to be amazed by. Um, so with that, I uh, look forward to the book. I'll see you online. Thanks, Chase. Thanks a lot, Tim. Had a great time.